When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be Mr. Briscoe, wherever he is in our Brady Bunch squares. And from incredible tag teams with Sid Vicious, Stan Hansen, and Mean Mark, the undertaker to Wayland Mercy. He is a legend in our business, in and out of the ring, Mr. Dan Spivey. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for a hell of an intro there. Very good. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Jerry had lunch with you last week, and uh, he said, "You would you like to have Dan Spivey? Are you kidding me? I'd love to have Dan Spivey. This is awesome." Uh, yeah, yeah. Dan, when I when I told John, you know, I'd go and watch it. I did. You want me to ask him to do a I thought he was going to do a backflip. For him to do a backflip, get that big ass of his off 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 the ground would be would be a miracle. So I I I, I asked you so we could see John do a backflip, but we won't ask him to do it during the course of this show. But it's always a pleasure to to see you. I, I we don't you know we live about 30, 40 miles apart, but we don't get to see each other that often. And uh, and now that things have loosened up, you know we we have a lot a lot of a lot of get-togethers right here in Tampa with a lot of the old timers. And man, I hope I hope you start coming to some of them. And uh, John, just uh, fill you in. I live out here in a little country town called Odessa. It's actually where the Spiveys grew up. There's a Spivey Road down the street from me. And uh, and, and Danny, I got to tell you, he always gives me uh, grief about living close to that, uh, what's your name, Bascom chick that owns uh, Carol Baskin. Yeah, Carol Baskin, you know, has that uh, Big Cat Rescue. That wasn't too far from where you grew up, right? Oh, no, not at all. Right down the road. Yeah. So anyway, it's a pleasure having you here. But John, uh, Danny, and his brothers were legendary, tough, fast guys. When when uh, when I moved out here, everybody said, "Hey, do you know the Spivey brothers?" Yeah. Well, man, they're badasses, and I know some badass Odessa rednecks. So there's a bunch of rednecks out here, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes. and we fit right in. I fit right in with them, man. I love them to death, but. Yeah, the Spiveys were, were some of those legendary tough guys that, that, that roamed these little country dirt roads out here that uh, that you didn't want to mess with. And their their reputation uh, was long before professional wrestling reputation, let me tell you that. Yeah. Well, I talked to Bruce Pritchard yesterday, last night. I said, hey, we got Dan Spivey on tomorrow. All he said was, oh, he's a badass. guys they're all vicious rumors don't believe that shit (laughs) danny you're one of the nicest guys i've ever met yeah i mean sincerely i bet you know when i when we first was able to meet each other you know i was just impressed how nice you were and uh, of course i got to know your family and all that stuff you know from being out in this area here and i couldn't be more proud of what you have accomplished you know that's not even hitting on the fact that you were a great prep football player here and went on to play for the Georgia Bulldogs. And uh, you were All-American, what, your, your freshman year or your sophomore year, then got, got injured and uh, kind of derailed your career after that? Uh, my junior year, I, end of my sophomore year, I got a lot of press. 
you know, preseason All-Americans, stuff like that. And uh, that's when I got hurt my junior year. And then when I got hurt, to be honest, that was the beginning of the end. I just, um, the bad thing about it is I got hurt playing uh, against uh, Vanderbilt. You know, all schools get hurt against Vanderbilt, you know, and uh, really tore my knee up. And the day afterwards, I went to Coach Dooley, and I told him I wanted to be operated as soon as possible. Uh, to get ready for the following season. And he says, well, <clears throat> Dr. Mulhern, the orthopedic doctor, said you can play. So anyway, I, they made me practice, run sprints, and I was just hobbling around there. And so I played short yardage defense and goal line defense. And uh, eight weeks later, we were supposed to go to the Peach Bowl, and I just refused to play and uh, got operated back in the day when they split you wide open and put you in a cast for eight weeks. So I went basically four months without using that leg and uh, atrophy set in and arthritis set in. It was a mess. I just, speed was my biggest asset. You know, I wasn't, you know, considered back then 250 was considered big enough to play football. I mean, before 255, I had to sit at the fat man's table. Can you believe that? <laughs> you know, and uh, I ended up still getting drafted by the Jets. And uh, there's a famous doctor, Dr. Um, I can't remember his name right now, but he was the guy that took care of Joe Namath. And uh, he asked me, how long did it take before they operated? And I told him, he said, well, they screwed you over because you should have been operated on within 48 hours. So, you know, that, that right there shows that, you know, Division I football is all about money. They don't care about you. You know, they could care less. You know, we weren't having a good year that year. Coach Dewey's job was on the line. And, uh, you know, they just found somebody else to replace me. And the hell with Dan, you know. So left a bad taste in my mind, in my mouth. And, uh, you know, I was uh, pretty pissed off at everything, even the world, you know, because that's was my open dream was playing professional football. And, um, you know, I, I paid the price by uh, – you know, just not knowing that, you know, what my options were or how I could have taken care of my, you know, I was 19 years old, so I didn't know what to do. My parents never had any kids go to college or anybody in my family for that. I was the first one in my whole family to ever go to college and uh, they didn't know what to do. So anyway, that was the beginning of my outlaw days. <laughs> man, and we're, talk, we're talking about one of the legendary coaches too of all time, Vince Dooley at the University of Georgia, but that just goes to show you, you know, we were all a piece of meat when we we're on athletic scholarship. I mean, uh, you know, they play by their rules. They don't play by, by society rules. And uh, my, my knee, my, we were comparing scars the other day, about knee replacements. And my the doctor asked me, when did you get hurt? And I said, when I was 15 years old. <laughs> I got I got both my bone broken my leg and they just set set my leg and they didn't even check my knee out about about six months later they took the cast off like you say back in those days you know you had to wear those damn casts forever I was in a cast for almost eight months and finally when they took it off I couldn't walk I kept falling and I went back to the doc where well, your knees screwed up you're like, you're, we're have to serve uh, do surgery I said doc I've already missed my 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 completely my sophomore year. I missed another year and I can't go to school unless I get a scholarship. I can't set out another year, you know. Well, tape it up, you know, and then from 
from uh, from junior and high school all the way through college, I taped up my damn knee and went out and competed, you know, but we we're just a piece of meat. <laughs> then how did you end up at uh, Georgia? I mean, you, you're just opposite of my uh, best friend, my tag partner, Ron Simmons. Ron was a huge prep yeah. star in Georgia. You were a huge prep star in Florida, and you would go to Georgia, and Ron goes down to Florida State. How did you end up in Georgia? Well, I guess the statute of limitations ran down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I went, uh, you know, I could have gone to any school I wanted to. And um, at that time, Florida State was 0, 018 and 2. And they were having people doing one-on-one uh, -on -one drills in pits with chicken wire over the top of it. And, you know, they hadn't won a game in two years. So that, Florida State was out. University of Miami was a total outlaw school and uh, with, you know, I just didn't want to go there. And uh, Florida, when I went to Florida, I was going to the lunch line and cafeteria and the black guys wanted to pick a fight with me. And so, you know, I'm being recruited and these guys, I'm already having to fight guys and shit, which, you know, I, so University of Florida didn't have any black people <laughs> at that time playing football but we had five guys that came in with me and they're the greatest guys uh you know i still talk to some of them today but the biggest reason is because uh the university of georgia sent somebody down to take my sat test or act how did they do that's, that's a truthful answer <laughs> how, how did they do on your sat uh, I think 32 was the top. He got 26 out of 32. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you're a smart dad. <laughs> I got a 12, I think. <laughs> that was because he took it twice and they added it together. <laughs> so it seems like every, every wrestler in Florida starts by meeting Dusty Rhodes in a bar. So you you end up meeting Dusty Rhodes in a bar, and that's how you end up getting started with uh, in wrestling, right? That's how I met Jerry. Was in a bar. <laughs> that's that's not unusual. <laughs> yeah, I, I I had you know I had met Jerry and Jack maybe a year or year and a half before I met Dusty, and uh, yeah, I was in uh, the Cowboy little country western Dallas Bull Lounge, and Dusty was in there and got talking to him. And I told him my situation and, you know, a lot of people don't know, but I was 35 years old when I broke into the business. So I already lived a couple of lifetimes. So <laughs> everybody thought I was a sweet, innocent, big guy, you know, and uh, they didn't know that I ran the street Del Mabry for years. And so anyway, I, I just always was a big fan of wrestling and uh, really wanted to do it. And he, he uh, put me and Scott Hall together and named us for this name. I don't know why. The American Starship, Eagle and Coyote. Where he came up with that shit, I don't know, man. But, you know, and then basically he didn't do shit with us. So we went to, um, we met Harley in Charlotte. And uh, he says, well, why don't you come up to Kansas City? I'll make sure you guys work every night, you know, and get, get some time in. So me and guy get my old 1971 <laughs> pickup truck, go to Kansas City. Go to the office and walk in. We said, we're here to see Harley. And they said, well, Harley's in Japan. Well, me and Scott, you know, we, we were told to come here. We, Bob Geigel was the guy we were talking to. He said, well, we know nothing about you guys coming out here. Harley didn't say nothing to us. You know, here we go. <laughs> all he said, well, I'll give you guys a chance. And so me and Scott started in Kansas City, really. So that's that story.
And, and when you started there, you worked with the Rockers a lot, right? With Sean and Marty? Yeah, yeah. About every night for a long time. You know, Sean, Sean the Bible say they both went on to become huge stars, great workers. Uh, Sean became, you know, oh. known one of the greatest of, of all time. Could you tell then when you're working with Sean that this guy is, has the potential to do something really great in this industry? Yeah, the first time I saw him in the ring, he was he was a lot further along than we were. You know, he he was uh, he was he was good to begin with. You know, he worked just like Terry Taylor did. You know, him and Terry, you see them work when in their careers, and it's uh, like a that duplicate. Terry was, Taylor was a great great guy, wasn't he, Dan? Yeah, the rooster. <laughs> he hated that name, the rooster. <laughs> I don't remember. Yes, they spike his I hair. Think, I think John, I think John's the one that suggested that name, Red Rooster. <laughs> <laughs> that's all Undertaker would ever call him is Rooster. It's that's all they called it, probably to this day. Rooster. Rooster. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knew it bugged him. <laughs> when 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 you were when you're up there teaming with Scott and then Marty, Marty and uh, and uh, Sean were together. You know the the prop uh, the, the the popular uh, perception at that time that Marty was 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 the guy that was going to be the breakout guy because yeah. he, he he was a little bit more advanced. He, he, even though Sean was a tremendous worker at that time, Marty was really the one who was shining, right? Yeah, Marty was ahead of all of us. You know, I, I don't know if he had more time in it or we were all pretty close to being about the exact same time. Of coming in, you know, me and Scott had no ring time whatsoever when we got to Kansas City. You know, the only way that I learned was in Charlotte was Ricky Steamboat would go down to the um, to the arenas on Tuesday. That's when they did the syndicated shows, and um, they put the ring up early. And Ricky would get in the ring with me and work with me, and he, uh, you know, put in some time and effort because he'd go early to those shows and stuff. So I would like to Rick Ricky for helping me. He did. What so, a technician you had uh, to help you help you begin there. I mean, Ricky's one of the smoothest guys ever to hit hit that squared circle, and one one of the best guys of uh, of all time. So, what what a mentor you you had at that time there. But yeah, I, I was the first. He's the first guy I ever drop kick. He's the first guy I ever suplexed. It. <laughs> and uh, man, he like a champ. <laughs> he was, I, you know, he's just a great guy, Ricky is. And did you go from there to WCW? Is that how we, when you got team? What, what was the impetus for teaming you up with Sid for the first time? Uh, man, Sid, I was going back and forth to uh, Japan. And uh, let's see. Oh, I think it was. Um, Sullivan gave me a call and asked me to come to the office and told me about this great young kid they had. He's a big guy. And they were going to do all these things with us and stuff. You know, I said, well, all right. So I came into WCW and they put me in there with Sid. And, you know, I knew Sid had the look, you know. He just, you know, was phenomenal physique and everything for being that big and stuff. But, you know, he... uh you know, he had a hard time taking bumps and, uh, you know, he's just, he has some things he really needed to work on. And one of the things is, is that we were working with the Steiner brothers in New York on a pay-per-view and I started to match as usual. And, uh, we, uh, I was getting ready to tag him back in. He goes under the second row and he falls down. He said, I can't breathe. Said, what do you mean you can't breathe? You ain't done nothing. 
And he said, I can't <laughs> breathe. Anyway, he laid on my apron and I went 15 minutes with the Steiners being suplexed every which way but loose. <laughs> uh, come to find out he punctured a lung getting into the ring. Getting into the ring. Yeah, climbing into the ring. Nobody touched him. One of his ribs broke, punctured along. Wow. <laughs> and so, anyway, then, you know, I thought that was that. And then they called me up again and said, we got another young guy <laughs> that we want you to, you know, break in. It's, you know, and so, anyway. And they're saying, you're, they're saying young guys. Sorry to interrupt, but they're saying young guys. And you, you're you brand new in the business, too, right? <laughs> so, uh, I know. I just, you know, it was it was a tough deal there, but um, anyway. So that's when they told brought Mark in, and I knew right away he was going to be a star. Mark, he was uh, he was way along on his, you know, he was he was good. I mean, he did some good stuff, and uh, he listened. Uh, he was real quiet. He didn't drink or anything, and uh, you know, I take him to his room every night and pick him up and. Uh, uh, he was just a good kid, I mean, at the time. And then I went to back to Japan, and because they weren't doing anything with us, we were getting beat by the road warriors every night. You know, they said they're going to build us, and you can't be built if you're being beat every night. So I just got tired of the bullshit, and I went back to Japan. And so I come back after a couple months, and they said, man, you heard about this guy, The Undertaker? I said, no, who are you talking about? And so I turned on the TV, and I said, damn, it's it's – it's more he's got long hair when you know when i broke when he broke in with me and everything he had short hair no tattoos nothing was yes sir no sir and i ran into him about a year later he's all tatted up long hair out in the nightclubs the strip clubs drinking jack daniels and you know that's why i said wow what 360 this was <laughs> i didn't see i knew the kid was going to be good but i didn't know he's going to be this good you know and uh, <laughs> what a tremendous worker he turned up everybody i ever tagged with is in the hall of fame yeah damn Dan, danny tell tell us this i mean we all know mark as, as a locker room leader you know one of those guys that that, that he looked at you in the locker room and uh you 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 snapped her attention. Was did he always have that presence about him in the locker room that guys always respect him? Or did he did he work on that and, and develop that as he became the Undertaker? Well, you know, I, I I like to think that I had a lot to do with that. You know, you did because you know I I just you know I just the only thing I wanted you know is to have good matches and have respect. I mean, there was a situation that happened with us in uh, Corpus Christi where I thought that the Road Warriors took advantage of, of uh, Mark, and it really pissed me off. And so, I, at the end of the match, I got in and I just beat the shit out of them with chairs and stuff. <laughs> and I, I broke the chair to grab another one, break it. And so we're going up to the dressing room. He had going some stairs. Mark said, "He's going to be pissed. What are we going to do?" I said, "Don't worry about it." He said, well, they're going to be pissed. We're going to fight them. Well, I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I hear them coming up the stairs. They said, them son of a bitches and all this shit. And they walk into the great, great match, Dan. Great match. And I said, thanks, guys. How was that? <laughs> you know what's funny, Danny, is I've heard that story, the exact same story from Taker many times. Taker <laughs> told me that story several times. I was going to ask you about the match with The Undertaker. I, I didn't remember it was in Corpus, but he told me you turned into George Herman Babe Ruth <laughs> with a chair. Yeah. It just started I, wearing out the Road Warriors. And he's sitting there thinking, well, there's going to be a fight. And they walked in just like you said. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was good. So, 
Anyway, I left again after that because, I mean, you know, they just weren't going to do anything. And it's a shame because, you know, I I knew Mark was going to be a star. There was no way, you know, he kept that kind of attitude and devotion. And, uh, you know, he's strictly business, you know, it came ring time. Dan, did you ever figure out why they didn't do anything with you? I mean, you had Sid with you who had one of the greatest looks of all time. I mean, that, that look you couldn't replicate. He looked phenomenal. I know there's some limitations in the ring, but he, his look was incredible. Yeah. He had The Undertaker also as your tag partner, and they just did nothing really with you. Did you ever figure out why? No, I, I mean, we had matches with, you know, the Steiner brothers. I mean, they were, they were over. I mean, but it, how you can't get over and really do anything unless, you know, you have, you become believable, you know? And I thought we did a lot of believable stuff. I mean, it's not like today. I mean, you know, I saw the, the match uh, between, um, oh, what's his name? The new champion, um, McIntyre, McIntyre. And Drew McIntyre and the redheaded kid. What's his name? Seamus. Seamus. Boy, I've seen two of their matches, and it it was strictly old school stuff. I mean, it was believable. It was, you know, the stuff was laid in right, and they sold. And, you know, it was just a great match. I saw two of them, and they were awesome. And I thought that we worked used to work that way, you know. But you're not going to – go anywhere if you don't have some wins i believe i mean you know after you become and you're established you know then you start doing jobs and stuff but you know can't just start off and be brought in and get beat every night what, what was it like when you, you had some great tag teams the one with stan was huge and over in japan how did you get tagged up with stan uh the first the first time <laughs> uh gosh just put together uh, I had been going over there for a while. Uh, I got let go with WWE and around 85 or 86. And uh, I was out of work. I mean, there was nowhere that I, I, I could find any work. And I was in debt. I owed taxes, $18,000 worth of taxes. And Terry Funk called me. And uh, he says, Spidey, you want to go to work in Japan? I said, yeah, of course I do. And so he said, all right, I'll call you back. So he calls back a little bit later. And he says, look, I got you booked in Japan. And here's the information. He says, you could have gotten 3500 but I told him that you'd take three just to show where your head was in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> you cut me $500? So I know where that 500 went. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that double cross ranch is where it went. Yeah, exactly. I got double cross, that's for sure. But... Terry Funk took care of me. He really did. And so I had been working over there for a while and they just put me and stand together over there. And we, we were, we became, you know, we were over in Japan. And had some great matches with Doc and Terry, you know, what two great workers those guys were. And uh, we worked with them quite a bit. And uh, it was a real pleasure doing business over there. I mean, you know, there's no gimmicks and whatever. You just go out there and beat the shit out of each other and go. Yeah, and those matches you guys had with Doc and, and uh, Gordy, I mean, I, I wish everybody could see those. You know, you wish those were the ones that were on American television for American fans because that was legendary. Because we heard about those matches. You know, I worked for All Japan after you did, and we heard about how incredible those matches were. That had to be a great run when you're going out there with three great workers 
in a place that really appreciates you like Japan. Yeah, it was uh, Japan was all, if I had it to do all over again, I would have stayed in Japan. I wouldn't have I would have done just like Stan did, you know, finished his whole start, finished his whole career right there in Japan. And he did very well. I mean, I don't know why I just was set on coming back to the States and, and getting over and, you know, but things just didn't work out. How how was Steve Williams to work with? You know, I I, I Steve was uh, went to went to OU uh, and I followed him during his football career. Then when I you know I was fascinated, Bill Watts had one to, you know he was recruiting that OU football team pretty heavy, and he broke him into business. So I knew he was broke in you know a, a stiff way, but you know he was a monster, and uh, and it had had to be it had to be a a real shoot fight when you guys were in there because I know your style too. You don't back down from nothing. So that 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 team that foursome you guys had, man, the Japanese people had to had to be going crazy over that, that style. Yeah, working with Steve was it was awesome. I mean, there was no bitching and complaining. I mean, no egos were involved in the matches. You know, we gave and took. You know, you know, just did did business. You know, it was uh, it was just look forward to those things every night. You know, working with those guys. Of course, you felt at the end of the week you're a little sore, but other than that, it was great. You know, one thing I always found, uh, Dan, because I got to work with Doc quite a few times, was the real tough guys were the easiest to work with because they knew yeah. it was a work. You know, Ken Shamrock was a, a gym to work with, you know, former UFC champion, but he understood it was a work. Brock Lesnar's the same. It's just those, the tough guys to me were always some of the easiest because they didn't have anything to prove in the ring. Well, if they did start doing that shit, you gave them receipts and <laughs> you usually straighten them. <laughs> so. Dan, I, I, let me ask you a question because uh, I, I know you love to play golf. And you mentioned uh, Taker earlier. I know you played with Taker and Big Show and Brian Adams. So I've played with Taker and uh, Big Show many times. I lo love both those two guys. How many times did Brian Adams unhook Big Show's golf clubs as he's driving in the golf cart? Because I know he did. <laughs> I mean, after a while, he got ridiculous. I mean, gee. <laughs> Man, I, it, was, it was funny. I mean, Brian used to make me so freaking mad. I wanted to fight him out there on the course and shit. He would, you know, I'd be looking for my ball. He'd take his cart and run over it and, <laughs> and swear up and down. I couldn't unplug it. I see you're crazy. You know, it just, it was just a lot of fun. But Brian was such an instigator. Jesus Christ. And uh, Big Show, what a trip that was to watch Big Show swing with golf club. You know, and then lie about his score. <laughs> <laughs> who had the best swing who had the best swing of the group there was it like a charles brock Bar brock Bark no. swing? <laughs> of course it was me what do you think <laughs> well, jerry you're just taking a heat i heard big show's swing was one of the one that uh you'd, you'd just start laughing and you, you couldn't swing after watching him swing uh, it was it was uh, it was a sight to behold. But when he hit one, Jesus man, that yeah. would go. Right. It would go. It would be a long ways out of bounds, but it would go. <laughs> I, played, I played golf one time with Brian and Big Show, and Big Show told me before he went, he goes, Brian Adams is always unhooking my golf bag on the golf cart, so when I drive off, his bag falls out, the balls go everywhere, clubs go everywhere. He told me that before we got on the course. 
by the 14th hole, he had forgotten to check his golf bag. And sure enough, there goes Big Show. There goes his golf clubs. There goes his balls, his clubs. And to Big Show's credit, thank God, he took it it laughing. Yeah, this one course didn't have enough carts, so me and Big Show had to ride together. They made it about 10 holes. (laughs) (laughs) Ran out of juice. Speaking of big guys, uh, you were at WrestleMania too when they had the split uh, audience. You were in Chicago yeah. and you were in the Battle Royal with all the NFL players. How was it working with the NFL guys? Did you guys get with them before? Did were they cool to work? Yeah, with? we uh, we went out there three or four days in advance and got in the ring with them. You know, and everything was choreographed just about, and um, they they were great to work with. I mean, they knew they were out there. So, you know, they listened and uh, it went pretty smooth, I thought, you know, no big issues. No, it was a great battle royal. I just wondering, you know, you got so many of them. You know, it's it's easy to hide one guy. You know, when you got one guy that's not a, really a worker, you can kind of – but you had a, a bunch of them <laughs> out there at yeah. the same time. <laughs> it was full of them. Uh, you know, there were some, uh, some legends there. Uh, can't remember a lot. Of, I know that uh, Dick Butkus was outside. Two Tall Jones was there. and. Um, that's all I can think of right now. But anyway, I, I, know a, you had Russ, Russ, I know you had Russ Francis there. Of course, Russ grew up in the, in the business, so he had to be a leader too among those football players to kind of help 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 them through the match. Oh yeah, there's that other young kid that was offensive tackle for Atlanta. He's a rookie, I think. Uh, I Van think no, was, no, I don't know. I'm trying to think, can't think of his name right now. But they had some amateur. Uh, wrestler that was a left tackle rookie or something around that time. Anyway, but there's a few guys, but they were all respected that, you know, who was in charge. Plus we had the giant on our side. <laughs> you know, that's what I've found, I've found out through the years. You know, they, they, these guys, these, these uh, superstar athletes come into our business and the amount of respect that they bring, uh, you know, bring into the locker room is just unbelievable. You know, they respect the heck out of what we do because we respect them and make them comfortable in there. But, uh, you know, I've never heard too many issues to, with, with a guy coming in with an attitude, you know, well, I'm all pro, I'm NFL, I, I, can't, I can't do that stuff. If they, if they had that attitude, they wouldn't be there in the first place the way I looked at. No. No, they wouldn't. I mean, all of them were, were very respectful. I was surprised, you know, because I haven't been around them, you know, in that kind of element in a long time. But, they, yeah, they were very respectful. And it was, uh, it was fun. Enjoyed it. They're easy to get in, you know, easy for, to get along with in the dressing room. I mean, they sign autographs. We sign autographs for them, you know. So it was, it was a fun deal. Dan, did you realize at the time, you know, WrestleMania 1 had such success. WrestleMania 2 was successful. And then WrestleMania 3, of course, was the big one with Hogan slamming the giant. But the the triple show that you had from uh, New York, Chicago, and L.A. for WrestleMania 2, Vince never did it again. Did you feel at the time that it was not working, being in the live, being your, doing your part of the show from Chicago? Did you realize that this was probably well, – I can I, you know, I can only go by what happened in Chicago. I mean, I think it was in the Rosemont Horizon. I mean, it sold out, uh, you know, so I don't, I, I guess it was pay-per-view. Well, three, three of the shows were like pay-per-view deal. I don't remember how it went, but all of them were sold out. I heard that the, the numbers were all good, so I don't know. I was just going by the fact they never tried it again. You know, I don't know if it's oh, yeah. 
that had to be a headache, man, trying to do three shows at once. I mean, that had yeah. to be tough. And the, and the time and, and the timing involved in it. I was doing yeah. a promotion at that time down here in Florida, and I remember you know trying to trying to sell the paper uh, the venues the pay per view concept. They were going to three different venues, and we're going we're going to be on air. Are you going to be on air at the same time all three? I mean, it, it was a it was a difficult situation. I I think on on a production uh, uh, standpoint. It was probably the hardest one they ever had to do because the timing had to be just right. No satellites, you know. It was in a different stage there. You know, there were wasn't hadn't been a lot of lot of experiments like that done. I think WWE was the WWF was the first one that tried that tried a multiple uh, venues like that. And and, and I just don't think uh, it, it it was uh, financially. I think it was very successful because of the concept was so unique, but. Uh, I think I think uh, you know production wise, I think it was just too big of an expense for them to go. Plus, you were dealing with three different time zones, right? Right. Yeah, and one was three hours earlier, all the way from Chicago to uh, I'm oh. sorry, from New York to all the way across to LA. That's a that's a huge difference having to deal with. I'm sure the way they're doing it now is much better <laughs> because I'm sure they're doing well doing the way they're doing it. Dan, I saw an interview you did. I can't remember where it was. I don't know if it was Hannibal TV or somewhere that you did with about uh, Outback Jack and, and one of your good friends, uh, <laughs> one of the legends, uh, Dynamite Kid. You talked about how he, he ribbed uh, Outback Jack, who apparently deserved it. What all was Dynamite Kid doing to Outback Jack? Oh, man. See, Outback Jack comes in. He was, you know, gets rides with us, you know. And back then we were paying trans, you know, whatever it was. And uh, so he uh, he didn't pay his trans on a couple of trips. And he also got some steroids from Dynamite. And uh, he told Dynamite that since he was working on top, he shouldn't have to pay him. And I told Jack, I said, you better pay him or you're going to pay a price. You know, so anyway, he said he wasn't worried about it. So anyway, Dynamite halcyoned him, put sleeping pills in his drink. Got him to his room, shaved his eyebrows, cut his crocodile off the back of his his uh, jacket, and shit in his bag. Davey Boy, <laughs> all three. <laughs> yeah. And but the next day he comes down with no eyebrows, holding his croc in his hand, and uh, <laughs> it was just you know I said I told you you should have just paid him. It would have been a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, got, people don't understand. It was brutal back then on the road with with with, with uh, the bulldogs and, and the other guys that like to rip Fuji and uh, you oh, know yeah. you had to watch your p's and q's and that that you know that was kind of the leadership that we had in the locker room where you know you, if you screwed up you were going to get you were going to get ribbed for it and ribbed publicly for it and uh, and, uh, and and it's amazing amazing that there wasn't more fights you know, at that time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. I was surprised there wasn't more fights. Uh, I remember I came in, and that's when we used to do uh, interviews and stuff in Maryland or around Washington or Baltimore. I think it was Jerry. We used to do interviews on Saturday at the, back in the eighty early eighties, and so it was on a Saturday morning. I'm hungover. I'm waiting in the lobby, waiting to be called up and stuff. And I wake up, my boots are on fire. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <started, laughs> 
I guess who was sitting across from me? Mr. Fuji. <laughs> it was it was uh, athletic tape they had put on my boots and stuff. So I'm hitting it at the, the sticky on the back of the tape was sticking to my fingers. My fingers caught on fire. And uh, Mr. Fuji says, I don't know who did it, but Mr. Spivey, Mr. Fuji investigation was checking in on it to let me know who it happened. <laughs> That's like having the APA investigate something. Yeah, <laughs> right. We're gonna. That was. That's been a catchphrase ever since. Dan was. Uh, we, we're gonna have Mr. Fuji investigate. We need to call yeah. Mr. Fuji investigations. Three thousand two hundred cases unsolved. <laughs> <laughs> Fuji Fuji was 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 uh, aside from his ribbon, but what a great guy to be around. And what what a sense of humor he had. I mean, uh, there never a dull moment in the locker room. He always had a story, and that story always had something at the end of it you were going to laugh your ass off about. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was a guy you wanted to be your friend, that's for sure. Because he's an enemy. I've heard some stories where he's put blades on all five fingers and be hitting somebody on the shirt, patting them on the back and stuff, and just cutting them up. They didn't even know what was going on. People would be shocked at how stiff the ribs were back then. I mean, I, I remember guys sleeping with band-aids across their eyebrows so they wouldn't get their eyebrows shaved when they were asleep. <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's a good thing to know. <laughs> you should have thought about that years ago, right? <laughs> Davy Boy once shaved off one of his own eyebrows because he had cut off a bunch of other eyebrows, and that way he thought he would he thought he would have taken away any suspicion of himself. <laughs> <laughs> I heard I heard one story. I don't know the whole the whole story word for word, but it was something about these guys did something, new guys that broke into business. And Fuji invited them over and ended up feeding them dogs and stuff, stuff I've like heard that. that. You I've hear heard that story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah you you, uh, one thing I didn't realize, you uh you, you knew you wrestled Brody, I guess, uh the night before he got murdered in Puerto Rico yeah. and you're supposed to wrestle him a single night the next night. And Brody took, uh, apparently from what I saw in the interview with you, took a liking to you. That was a uh, pretty unusual for Brody. You were looking forward to it. And then all of a sudden this crazy murder happened in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. It, it's, it was a gosh, you know, it was just, uh, I met Brody or ran into him the day of, uh, in a gym, just in passing, just said, Oh, that was it just kept on walking you know so that night uh it was me and uh abdullah against him and uh carlos and so you know i've heard stories about brody and everything but you know i just went out there expecting a regular old match you know so i go out and i hook up with him and we start you know throwing each other around and stuff and ended up towards the end of the match we ended up outside the ring rolling around on the floor and he says we're gonna make a lot of money in japan now get the fuck out of here <laughs> and so i went to the dressing room you know and uh get back into the dressing room and everybody says i can't believe you did that i said well, did what nobody rolls on the floor with brody i said well, he just did you know huh. so they just couldn't believe it and so i was looking forward to you know the next night, I was supposed to be in a singles match with him, you know, in the main event. And uh, they came over and told me, your Brody's dead. They killed him in the dressing room. So I packed up my shit and went to the airport. 
Yeah. When when did you find about it? After the fact, or did you hear it had happened and he got taken away, or was it? It happened at the, at the beginning of the night. I was getting ready to 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 go. Well, I was getting dressed and everything, and I heard they took Brody to the hospital. He was stabbed in the dressing room. So it happened at the very beginning of the night. And and you knew at that time it was one of the boys that had done it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure did. And did See, it was, it was the, the dressing room. It was on a baseball park, so they were on third base side, and I was on first base, or vice versa. You know, it, it wasn't like it was adjoining or close to each other at all. You know, so when was the show canceled? Was it canceled at that point when he when they first? I, I don't think they canceled the show. I, I just know I left. You know, I just took off. Then. It was some years. Were you, were you, or were you the only one that left from the hillside uh, and went on? Yeah, of course, Abdullah State. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I was the only one that I remember leaving. Most of those guys, you know, that were there lived there and stuff. I was, and, uh, and you never went back down there, correct? No, I didn't. Yeah. No. And, you know, they were good to me over there. You know, I heard everything revolved around money. I heard so many different stories. I heard that, you know, Brody said something about his kid dying in the swimming pool. Or, you know, I just heard all kinds of shit. But the biggest thing was I heard it was about money. Then I heard one thing was he didn't want to put me over. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> Puerto Rico was was a great place to work prior to that. We used to go down there from Florida all the time, and we always looked forward to those trips because it's a beautiful country. And, you know, Carlos had a great promotion. He ran those big-ass ballparks over Clemente, Bayamon, and, uh, you know, all those, all those big venues like that. And they were usually packed, and they were fun, and they were relaxing. But, and when that happened, man, I mean uh, – you know, uh, rest in peace, uh, Frank, because he was such a—he was a wonderful man outside the ring, really. I mean, and uh, and a good friend. And uh, but uh, it just—you know—nobody wanted to ever go back down there and work, work, work in that no. area. I don't blame him. I wouldn't either. I refused to go too. But uh, what a tragedy and what a lifetime that was. And uh, but uh, you know, it's a shame because it was such a great place to go. Yeah, I enjoyed going down there until that happened, of course. You know, and it's just, um, you know, he was he was close to Stan Hansen, and, you know, me and Stan are close, and Terry Funk, you know. I So I knew all, a whole bunch of good things about, about Brody and stuff, and I, I respected the guy. I didn't, you know, I'd never worked with him or been around him except for that one night. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I could just, you know, I was really optimistic and looking forward to working with him in Japan and, you know, that didn't happen. So I was quite disappointed he got murdered. Did you go to Japan after that? Is that where, where your next? Yes. Doctor? Yeah, I was already working in Japan. Oh. And uh, got I got to ask you about the, the one story, the most famous story. Uh, when everybody talks about uh, Dan Spivey, the Adrian Adonis story. So, oh, my. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know you've repeated it a hundred times, but get, all the shit done. And that's the only thing I remembered for is Adrian Adonis. That's <laughs> well, a great story. I guess, I guess it's because everybody was scared to death of Adrian for some reason. You know, 
like I said earlier in this broadcast, you know, I, I grew up on the streets of Del Mabry. I mean, you know, running that, doing all the crazy shit I used to do down there. And, and this guy's going to come in and try to bully me. I said, what the fuck? See, it started the night before in, in, uh, in Canada where we used to do our tapings out, right outside Toronto. And uh, he came out with that new um, gay gimmick. And uh, they were getting him over, you know, trying to get him over for Hogan and stuff to a run. So he was getting fed a lot of the underneath guys. And, you know, he would take advantage of them. And I saw him doing that. And, you know, and I hear the guys complain, you know, about him cussing them out and calling them stupid and, and ready kicking them and stuff. So I worked with him that night. And uh, he started doing that same shit with me. And, you know, I finished the match with him and I went back in the dressing room and Dynamite and Davy Boy and Scott McGee already had my stuff and they pulled me out of the uh, the Coliseum and took took me back to the hotel, you know, because they knew I was pissed. Well, the next night we're in Flint, Michigan, the first time we ever went to Flint and it was sold out 10,000 people. So the main event was supposed to be uh, George the Animal Steel against Adrian. Well, Pat Patterson comes to me and says, look, you're going to have to work with Adrian tonight. I said, I don't want to work with Adrian. And he comes back a little bit later. He said, you work with Adrian. Adrian don't want to work with you either. I said, well, good. He said, but Vince says y'all are working together. I said, okay. So I started taping my hands up, you know, boxer type tape, taping job. And so, you know, I just made up my mind before I went out there that if he starts his shit, I'm going to beat the fuck out of him. I'm sorry. No cussing there. But anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and so we get in the ring and same crap started. And he started kicking me really hard. And he's going to put a sleeper on me. He started putting it on. I said, nah, this ain't working. So I just came out of it and I just started beating on him, you know. And so he falls down, knocked out. I cover him. The rest says, that's not the finish. I said, I changed it. He's not going over. <laughs> so then, you know, I guess it was Jimmy Brunzel was watching the match from the apron, from the back. He said, Spivey's killed Adrian. Spivey killed Adrian. And so I go into the locker room and here he comes through the doors, goes and tries to leg dive me and I uppercut him just split him wide open. And so they're holding me against dog and Jake are holding me and dogs you know, and they got me and he's loose and they, they're saying, here comes by, here he's coming, here he comes, here. So they let me go. And I hit him again, split him open. And that's when Randy Savage pulled me out of there and took me down to his dressing room, got me ice for both hands. Both my hands were just really swollen. Probably, you know, just, you know, and that was that. So next night I had called, next day I was told, call Vince. And so I called Vince. He says, Look, Dan, I can't have you beating up my talent. I said, Vince, he's very talented. <laughs> and he didn't like that remark. He says, you know what I'm talking about? I said, okay. So anyway, so the next night I show up in, um, where were we that night? I don't know, Pennsylvania somewhere. And I'm sitting in the locker room. He comes in, he's all stitched up and everything. And he starts saying shit to me. He said, I don't know people who will take care of things for me. And, I, and, and Morocco said next to him, he said, Adrian, keep your fucking mouth shut. You know? <laughs> so anyway, that was that. I saw him and uh, Rivera's over in Japan 
two nights before, two weeks before he died in the wreck. So, you know, we had a beer and everything was okay. So, Bob Orton was on the show with us, our friend Bob, and uh, he's my first tag partner in Japan. He told me, he said, the rib was on me. I'm the one that had to take Adrian to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. well, apparently, Adrian came back and told Bob Orton, he goes, hey, I'm going to go over there to the dressing room and go after uh, Spivey. And Orton said, don't do that. He said, "I'm look, I'm friends with Dan. I'm friends with you. Don't do that. There's no need for that. But that's when Adrian came over to you. So that was the story we came back to Bob and Bob was the one that ended up having to take him to the hospital. So Bob thinks the rib was on him. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> We're an informative show here, Dan. We're all about being accurate here. So, Hey, I want to ask you a question, take you way back. I mean, you're talking about the streets of Del Mabry. People don't understand, you know, the concert Tampa was a, you know, back in the seventies, I mean, we we it was it was a small community here, and a lot of people knew each other. But you know, they they talk about you and Hogan. You first met Hogan when he was playing at a at a rock and roll band, also, right? I mean, uh, you guys go way back. Yeah, I, you know, I used to uh, be bouncer in clubs around Tampa, and he'd be playing his bass in a band called I never forget the name of it. For some reason, it's called Ruckus. And they had a pretty good little band. They played all the clubs around Tampa. And uh, I was working in Athens Club one night, and they came in and played a weekend. So, yeah, we kept running into each other quite a bit. Never, you know, piled around or anything, but we knew each other, you know. Well, you're both really big guys. I, th I thought maybe it might be, you know, where, you, hey, you ever think about wrestling or anything like that? But uh, you never had those type of conversations with him. Huh? No, no, never did. No. Were you shocked when you saw what what Terry Bollet had turned into? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly was. I think that a lot of people were. I mean, when you, first time I really saw him was on that movie, you know, he did with Stallone. And uh, I said, that's money right there. <laughs> I mean, you know, and plus, you know, with Vince's help, I mean, gave him the ball and he ran with it. You know, that's the, that's what happened. What was the uh, impetus for, uh, you know, toward toward the end of your career? I just missed you when I came to WWE when uh, Jerry hired me. Uh, I, I think I'm Jerry's greatest hire. Jerry said, <laughs> Jerry said that it's his biggest mistake he's ever made. But when <laughs> Jerry hired me in 95, you, you just left as Waylon Mercy you, because of injuries. What was uh, the, the thought process going back to WWE? I know you got the uh, reason for it uh, off of Cape Fear, right? Did you call Vance and say, hey, I want to do this character? No, actually, it was Jerry called me. <clears throat> he wanted to talk to Vance. And we, went we, to, we met here in Tampa, right? We met at the Sundome. Out there at uh, one of the uh, golf courses outside of Tampa. Yeah, Innsbruck, yeah. Yeah, Innsbruck, that's right. Um, yeah, and we got to talking, and we got Kate Fear came up, you know, and I said, well, that's great. And it's the biggest mistake i made in professional wrestling was uh leaving when i did you know i did get operated on and stuff but you know i uh i was just i got on the pain pills uh it was really great i enjoyed doing that character i still feel like that character is uh on on uh something i don't know it's just something that i i, I think about all the time is it was the first time I got to be Dan Spivey. 
not Dan Spivey. I got to play a character. And uh, it was just, um, it was so much fun and it was so easy for me. And, you know, even when Bray Wyatt came out, you know, he came to me and asked me about if he could do that. I said, sure, man, go with it. And so we talked about it. I said, it's just, you know, you grew up in a redneck area, so you ought to know some rednecks around there and you can copy. And, uh, you know, he really did a great job with it, but it's um, unfinished business for me. It's just something that haunts me to this day is that, you know, I didn't suck it up and, and keep going with it. But at the Dan, time, Danny, you were so injured back in those days. I mean, it was painful to watch you watch you go out in the ring. It was even more painful to watch you come back to the to the dressing rooms and try to get get dressed for to make another two hundred mile trip. You you gave it everything you had, but uh, you know uh, that had to mean so much to you, and that just shows you the respect that you have. I mean, this young guy Bray Wyatt coming up to you, you know, many many years later. And said, "Hey, I remember that Waylon Mercy did. Do you mind? I mean, that had to, that had to really make you feel good that you that you left something of the business, and all people got to do is turn on TV today and and still see an incarnation of Waylon Mercy. And by the way, I gave you that name. I gave that Waylon name. <laughs> sure did. I mean, it was a great name. I mean, uh, it's it was a." I, Jerry, I, I had so much fun doing the, the vignettes and just, you know, the they were, you know, I get compliments on them still today. People, you know, do these uh, on Facebook. I mean, they're always bringing up Wayland Mercy and how they they were feared. They feared when they were kids. They were scared of me and stuff, which, you know, it was really cool. I didn't get kind of reaction out of Dangerous Dan Spivey that way. But, you know, Wayland Mercy and the way I did the vignettes and stuff, um, it really got over. It got over more so than I ever expected. You know, like when I quit, Jerry, two weeks later, I got my hip replaced. So I didn't mess around. And I really was hurt. So yeah, I and remember that. I remember that, but it had to be such, it had to mean a lot when Bray came up to you and talked to you about the character and, I, and asking your permission to, to continue, basically. Gosh, yes. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was, it made me feel really good, to be honest, man. He, uh, he saw something there. That I don't know why they didn't do more, you know, um, than they did with that, but. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just that I wasn't able to go out and perform the way I wanted to and the way I knew I used to do. And just to go out there was cheating the fans. And so I just, I had to call it quits. I remember you and you and Vince calling me, asking me to come back. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it. You know, so anyway, it was fun while it lasted. But it's yeah, to me, that's a time that's a timeless character too. It's a character that could fit in any any time, any any era that that, that you wanted to throw in because it, it was such a it was such a frightful character. I mean, you know, we, we all know where it came from at uh, Cape Fear, which to me is uh, I I've watched both both uh, you know the old Robert Mitchum one, which was personally my favorite one, and that's where I came up with with the name uh, was. Uh, well, it was uh, that Robert Mitchell, and then, uh, of course, uh, the second one uh, was truly outstanding too. So that character, I think, you know, Bray, Bray, Bray is. Uh, I don't think Bray has taken it as far as it can go either. You know? No, no, 
hopefully he'll do like the Undertaker. You know, the Undertaker went to being a biker for a while and came back. So maybe uh, Bray did the same thing. It's got to be cool, though, Dan. That character, I was watching some of the stuff earlier, getting ready for the show here. Uh, that character was freaking awesome. I mean, awesome. It was, I love the picnic video, the vignette that you did. You're talking about the picnic. It's, it's yeah. so creepy. It's just gold. I loved it. But you got to exactly. love the fact that you did this character for not that long, and people still come up to you now and say, that was the, an awesome character. Yeah, I think there was a bug on my arm or something. I squashed it. <laughs> Torn the lights. Torn like a dog. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Watch like a bug. <laughs> well, Dan, a after, uh, you know, wrestling, uh, you know, like uh, a lot of them, you, you know, we, we didn't know, you know, I, I played pro sports back in the eighties and wrestled through nineties. We didn't know how much, how bad an addictive stuff could be to us. You know, and a lot of guys ended up with addiction. You got sober in the late two thousands, but the, the, the greatest legacy you have is how many people you've helped since, which is a true lasting legacy of truly changing and saving people's lives. Tell us about your work with uh, the, the project that you're doing. Well, I went on 12 years, 12 years of uh, just, you know, killing myself basically after I got out of wrestling in 96, 95, 96, somewhere I went on like 12 years of uh, painkillers, uh, anything I get my hands on. I mean, I was pissed off at the world, you know, I was 56 years old and, um, you know, I, I was mad at the world, you know, I was in pain and I just thought my life was over at 56. And, um, to make a long story short, I had such problems with my hips. I mean, I had problems since day one when I forgot, first got it done in 95, it kept popping out on me. And I had like, I went through, uh, five hip replacements. on the fifth one they had to take everything out. And, um, replace it with a four inch spacer made out of antibiotics. And the reason they do that is if they take something out and they don't put anything back into it, it'll lose that four inches. You can't get that four inches back. So during all this time, that 12 year stand from 2000, 2000, 1996 until, you know, say 2008, I had nothing but problems with my hips. I mean, I had five hip replacements and, those years, 12 years. And I was doing all kinds of drugs, ecstasy, you know, crystal meth. I mean, I had given up. I wanted to die. And uh, my life was over. I've been married five times. And uh, yeah, within 20 years, I was married five times. <laughs> and, uh, terrible romantic, I guess. And uh, <laughs> you know, I had several DUIs. You know, I just uh, tried to commit suicide. I got thrown in the crazy house for a while. And uh, you know, I, I just given up and then something happened. I, um, my brother came to see me, Jerry knows him, Jimbo. And, uh, he took me to the hospital because I couldn't walk. I got up to go to the bathroom and fell and my legs wouldn't work. There was no feeling in my legs. And what happened was I was detoxing from alcohol and, um, Vicodin. Not Vicodin, that was part of, but that wasn't called, it was uh, Valium, alcohol and Valium. And I learned later, those are the only two things detoxing from that can kill you. You know, the opiates just make you wish you were dead. And so they came, picked me up, took me to the hospital. And see, I was, I was happening on the weekend. 
I cleaned out my house and everything. I rid of all the evidence and stuff because I was waiting to go to the doctor on Monday. I just said, I'll just tough it out and, and uh, get them on Monday. Well, <laughs> I, I had all these problems and it took me to the hospital. Uh, they didn't know what was wrong with me. I was incoherent and stuff. For some reason or another, they gave me another script full of uh, pain pills and sent me home. So my brother comes over two days later. He had bought me some food and stuff, you know, and it was still sitting there when he came back over. And he said, Danny, what are you doing? I said, I said, uh, I got a hole in my head. He says, what? He said, I got a hole in my head. So he pulls back the blankets and my 45s laying there, with cocked and locked and ready to go. And he called the, he called, uh, the paramedics again. They put me in there, the hospital. And nobody knew what was wrong with me. I was out of my mind. I was having, you know, seizures. I was having all these nightmares and just, you know, out of my brain. And so I escaped from ICU and walked around the parking lot with my ass hanging out of the nightgown, blood coming out of both the arms from the IVs, looking for cigarettes. And so they get me back in the hospital, put me back in ICU. ICU and um, I did it again escaped and uh, they came and got me again this time they strapped me to a bed and um, I was in there and I remember waking up and there's these men standing in a circle around me and one of the men was a guy named Gary Ports my close friend who was in the business for quite a while second generation guy they had the uh, deacons from his church there and they had uh, laid hands on me and were praying for me and stuff. I remember that. And um, anyway, my next girlfriend that I had been seeing came to the hospital. She was a nurse and she told them what was going on that I was detoxing from Valium and alcohol. And uh, then they started treating me for the right thing and I got better. And uh, my brother got a hold of my aunt, who is my wife now, and uh, she was running the alcohol and drug deal for for work for Vince. She's the one who headed up that whole deal for them, and uh, she got me uh, into a John Larry, Johnny would, and so they sent me to place in Houston, Texas, had my brother fly out with me to make sure I got there. And it was a manager clinic and it was people with, uh, they thought I had done brain damage to my head in some ways. And uh, so I was there for about three weeks and something hit me. I was sitting in the room, padded room. And I said, you know, I can turn this all around. All I need to do is get sober and show people that you can get sober if you do the right things. And I can make right all the wrongs I've done. And there's a lot of things I've done wrong. And so I decided then that I was going to change my life. And uh, anyway, I remember one of the nurses there said, Dan, it's not your fault that you're an addict, but it is your responsibility to take care of. And that resonated with me, you know. So I had been to four other drug rehab centers before, and obviously it didn't work. But I went back to the hardest one I knew, and that was a place in Tampa called uh, Healthcare Connection. And um, it was a no, uh, no bullshit type place. It was strict, and they had these rules. I knew all this, and, but I wanted to go there because I wanted to get sober. 
and I wanted to change my life. And, you know, I was 56 and um, I thought my life was over, but since I've been sober, it's the best thing I ever did. And I got more things than I ever had ever before. Um, you know, I, so I was there for six months because I wanted to be, and I just have to thank, you know, Vince and the whole WWE universe, you know, the whole organization. I mean, what company takes care of guys? It's been 20 years since I worked for him. And he sent me the drug rehab, you know, five times. And he's done it for many others, too. If you never even made it to the big club, you know, he'll still take care of you. If you ever sign a contract, they'll take care of you. And I've been sober now for 12 years. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy. And I'm, I've got so much. God has really taken good care of me. AA programs helped me tremendously. And, uh, you know, I just want to show, tell people that it doesn't matter who you are, how far down, how far you hit bottom, you can come back out of it. You know, I'm 68 years old now and just, uh, you know, I, there was time when people wouldn't even let me watch their dog. I mean, my parents put me in charge of their trust and their companies and uh, asked me to take care of them and uh, be the trustee of their trust. And, uh you know, that's, that means a lot to me and uh, having given my respect back. And, uh, you know, and I enjoy helping guys. Probably HCC has probably ran probably about 50 guys or more through the, uh, their program over there. But unfortunately, that place doesn't exist anymore, but they're still sending people to other places. And all the guys that came to Tampa, I've had the pleasure of working with and helping them and just not telling them what to do. I just told them what I did to do to get sober. And I enjoy doing it, and uh, I'll continue doing it. It helps me stay sober. I got to give away something that was given to me. And, and you work with a lot of a lot of the old boys, right? A lot of the boys that have had problems. That a lot of them have come to you, and and you've helped the guys that have had problems with with addiction, right? Yes, yes. You know, any of them that comes to um, to came here to Tampa because I was the first one that evidently I was the one that this place that I went to had the best of sex rate, you know, because if I made it through there and stuck it out, it had to be good. So, cause I was in the top five that evidently they had a top five uh, list in the office who was on the list top five to pass away next. And I was in that list and she wouldn't tell me what number I was. But I was in the top five. <laughs> Dan, Danny, you're, you're married to an angel and Russo yeah. Gordon who worked with WWE about as long as I did. And then she, she's, uh, she's now, now your wife, but she helped pioneer that program. And, uh, and she, uh, was, has been so helpful to so many people. And, uh, every time I think of that, her name, I just get a smile on my face, but just thinking of all the wonderful people that she is, she has helped there. And, uh, and I'm so happy for you and her. I mean, what a what a great couple that you guys are devoted to, to helping helping people helping people recover. And like you say, you're a prime example. If Dan Spivey can make it through this thing, you know, there there's hope for everybody out there. And I don't mean that in a bad way, you know. But uh, but uh, all all my respect to you and and and. and uh, Man, man, the people that you guys have helped is a who's who of of of, of, of entertainment, you know? Yeah, it's been a, it's a, it just you know I, I just enjoy doing it. Giving back to what was given to me is uh, it's you know my calling, I guess you could say. But um, you know, I just love to seeing guys get well, you know, and just uh, change turn their lives around. And you know, I did it at fifty six, so 
you know, it's, um, it can be done, you know. It's just always been amazing to me that WWE, that they've been willing to help so many people. Like you say, you know, the WWE gets, you know, bashed for a lot of different things, but they do incredible stuff with people who are this there for a cup of coffee, some of them. I mean, some of them aren't very, very long at all, and, and WWE has helped them, you know, just because it's the right thing to do. It's really an amazing program that they have that that uh, that you have participated in and help with. It's been a few years now, but Billy Jack and some of these other yo-yos, you know, went on there saying how bad Vince was and uh, made them do drugs. They had to do steroids and and work with all you know it's the biggest bunch of bullshit and i went on there and i told people the right story the story that i knew was true and you know we weren't made to do anything we didn't want to do as far as that goes i mean you know i wasn't forced to take steroids i wasn't forced to take pain pills and stuff and you know i knew i didn't have any insurance when i went into the business i mean i knew all those things and they wanted to go on there and sue him you know and say that he caused them to have uh you know, concussion syndromes and all that stuff. I mean, we are, if you didn't work for the WWE, I don't feel like I was in the business if I would have ever happened to me. I mean, that was an epitome of doing, of your business was working for them and being in the spotlight on WWF or E. I mean, you know, that was uh, the pinnacle of uh, our profession was to work there. And then they want to knock the guy and say, he's a, you know, all these terrible things about it. I mean, what company takes care of guys that have drug and alcohol problems? There's not a ma- another major corporation out there that does that kind of stuff. I don't believe. I've never heard of them. And, yeah, uh, exa- I- exactly, Danny. And in your time, and in your time of uh, of doing this work, I mean, uh, you know, when when they're in that type of state of mind, you know, you're right. You're always the one that's right, and everybody else coming in to help you is, is dead ass wrong. And and you know, with that attitude, did you ever have any any physical confrontations or any any difficulties and and trying to get these guys or go? Or were they ready to go when 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 you got to them? Uh, you know, Jerry, I talked to him, and you know, the thing that I asked everybody that I help, are you willing to do anything to get sober? And if their answer is not yes, I don't work with them. It's just I said, come see me when you're ready to do anything to get sober, because that's the only way you're gonna do it. You can't do it for anybody else, you can't do it for your wife, can't do it for your kids. You gotta do it because you want to do it. And I'm telling you that from personal experience. I couldn't do it for my mom and dad. It came down to the fact that I wanted to get sober and turn my life around. And I was willing to do anything to do it. And so that's, and if they're ready, they're ready. They tell me, yeah, Dan, I'll do whatever you say. And so, and it's all suggestions. I don't tell anybody they got to do anything. I just say, you know, a suggestion that when you jump out of an airplane to have a parachute on. Yeah. Now you get their name. What what's the process? You get their name, uh, and you just make a cold call to them, and hey, I'm here to help you. Do you need you want you want help or what? Well, what generally happens? They have a guy that runs the uh, the program named Bill uh, Keelar, real nice guy. You know, he's um, been in the biz counseling business forever. You know, he's got all the certificates and stuff. Um, and he finds they call him and they make arrangements to go to rehab. And he tells me about them to coming in. I contact them when they get to the health care connection and uh, I would go see them and, you know, and let them know that I was here to help. If they needed help, here's my number, call me. And, 
anything, you know, I'm just right down the road. So that's how it starts. But I do have people that get my number and call me, you know, and get some advice on how to get sober, you know, what they should do, detox, things like that. Why, why, why does rehab not always work the first time? Most guys who get clean um, go through rehab more than once. Oh, uh, well, because we're terminally, we're very unique people because we're special. <laughs> we, you know, I, I go to rehab and they said, well, you need to read the big book. You need to do this. And I said, well, I'll do that one, but I'm not going to do this one. And they said, well, you need to do a step in the big book, step four. Well, I'll do all of them, but four. You need to get a sponsor. I don't need a sponsor. So it takes a while for it to sink in that I'm not terminally unique and, you know, I'm not special. I'm just a garden variety drunk, <laughs> an alcoholic and, you know, drug addict. And, uh, you know, I just went, you just not ready until, you know, you really to follow, follow some directions, you know, and that's all the program is, is following directions to follow what people did for them to get sober. Uh, some people get sober by just saying, I'm going to quit, you know, but I wasn't that fortunate. I had was hard headed and had to go through some more pain to, to get to where I'm at today, you know. You said something earlier that I think really nailed it to the point there. You know, you can't do it for your mom and dad. You can't do it for your wife. You can't do it for your kids. You got to do it for yourself. And I and it's just my opinion that until you get to that mindset, I'm going to do it for me. I'm the one I got to do it for that, that it's not going to work. That's true. You got to be doing it for yourself. You know, just uh, that's just the way it is, you know. Well, Dan, uh, you're leaving an incredible legacy. You've got an incredible legacy in professional wrestling, but the legacy you're leaving afterwards is is one of uh, absolute greatness, uh, changing lives and and saving lives, which is absolutely incredible. Since I heard you're coming on the show, Jerry told me he had lunch with you last week. I've been so excited to have you on. I'm looking forward to playing golf with you. Uh, I, think Jerry, I think Jerry is a really good caddy, so we, we'll have him carry the clubs. <laughs> and, and, and Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Good to see you guys. Dan, I want to thank you again. I, let's, let's have a lunch again real soon. But uh, I just I just want to say you, you're an exceptional person. You, you, you know, I've been there just about every step of your way uh, throughout your career. And uh, what you're doing now is probably the most important work you've ever done in your life or ever will do in your life. And, and, and bless you, man, and, and bless your wife. And, uh, and, and, man, stay healthy and stay well, and let's, let's get together and, and have another bite, man. Have another uh, barbecue. <laughs> oh, we can do that for sure. No problem. Just down the road. We, we, made, we made Hungry Harry famous for one day. I posted a picture of the three of us on, uh, on the internet, and people, people were, that's Hungry Harry's in Lutz, Florida. <laughs> <laughs>